Part five of Full Speed Ahead by Henry B. Beston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part five. Sixteen. Tragedy. Just at the fall of night, three days before, a weak and fragmentary wireless had cried forlornly over the face of the waters for immediate help, and then had ceased abruptly, like a lamp blown out by a gust of wind. The destroyers, stationed here and there in the vast loneliness of the gathering dark, had heard and waited for the position of the disaster, but nothing more came through the night. Presently it had begun to rain and now for three interminable and tedious days and nights rain had been falling falling with the monotony and purpose of water over a dam there being little or no wind the drops fell straight as plummets from a sky flat as a vast ceiling and the air reverberated with that murmuring hum which is the voice of the rain mingling with the sea rain greasy with oil it had gathered from the plates poured in little streams off the deck drops hissed on the iron of the hot stacks clad in stout waterproof clothes and wearing their waterproof hoods the crew went casually about their duties their hardy faces showing no sign of discomfort or weariness it was about three o'clock in the afternoon of a january day presently the lookout from his station on the mast reported floating object off starboard bow and a few minutes later one of the watch on the bridge reported two more floating masses this time visible to port the destroyer was making her way into a vast field of wreckage within the radius of visibility there lay drifting silently about in the incessant rain an incredible quantity of barrels boxes bits of wood crates vegetables apples onions fragments of coke life preservers and planks see if you can spot a name on anything said the destroyer's captain but though everybody looked carefully not a sign of a name could be seen mile after mile went the destroyer down the rain-lashed sea mile after mile of wreckage opened before her lifeboat ahead showing flag the captain raised to his eyes the pair of binoculars he wore hanging from his neck and peered out of the window by the wheel found her yet sir yes it's a small gray boat barely afloat i guess they put a shirt or something tied to a mast or an oar we'll have a look at it tell mullins to have a couple of men stand by with boat hooks in case we run alongside the swamped boat motionless as a stone in the driving rain lay no more than half a mile off voices eagerly discussed the possibility of finding survivors alive of course they ain't why the boat's awash sure but look at the flag those poor guys are goners long ago handled skillfully the destroyer crept alongside the motionless boat and presently those on the bridge looked directly down upon it it lay floating on even keel not more than six or seven feet off the starboard side and was held up by its tanks a red flannel shirt hung soggily against an upright pole and colored the shaft with the dripping of its dye the interior of the boat was but a deep puddle a dark puddle into which the rain fell monotonous and implacable floating face down and side by side in the water lay the fully clothed bodies of two men 
whilst in the stern sitting on a seat just under water with his feet in the water and his body toppled over on the gunwale could be seen a third figure dressed in a kind of seaman's jacket the wet cloth of his trousers clung lightly to his thin legs and revealed the taut muscles of his thighs then boat hooks fished out from the side of the destroyer and drew the heavy craft in a sailor cried out that all were dead any name on the boat hardy asked the officer standing by no sir very well cast off the lifeboat watched by some rather horrified eyes slid alongside the destroyer and drifted solemnly behind now said the captain who had come on deck i want one tidy shot put into that boat butler ten seconds later the roar of the four-inch at the stern burst asunder the murmur of the rain and the watchers saw the boat of the dead crumple and disappear in the loneliness and rain seventeen consolidation not cooperation talking one day with an english member of the house of commons i asked him what he held to be the most important result of american intervention the spirit of cooperation which you have stirred up among the allies he answered not that i mean to say that the allies were continually quarrelling among themselves the manner in which britain has shared her ships with other hard-pressed nations would refute any such insinuation but not until you came on the scene was there a really scientific attempt at the coordination of our various forces you were quite right to insist on a generalissimo but of course the great lesson you've given us has been through your navy there's been nothing like it in the history of the allied forces what an extraordinary position admiral sims has won in england his influence is perfectly tremendous there isn't another allied leader who has a tithe of his power i really do not think that there is a parallel to it in english history now this is no overstatement of the case the influence of admiral sims over the british people is tremendous all along he has had but one watchword consolidation not cooperation it is a splendid phrase and admiral sims has turned it into action the way i gathered from various members of the staff and embassy had not been without its obstacles for instance once upon a time certain american forces were to be sent into a distant area and a member of the allied naval council sitting in london had taken the stand that the little force should be supplied from the united states immediately admiral sims pointed out that these american forces must be considered as allied forces and must be supplied from the nearest and most convenient allied sources of supply and he carried the day not only has the admiral insisted on the consolidation of material forces but he has also insisted on a consolidation of the allied spirit himself a master of diplomacy and tact he loses no opportunity of reminding the individual officers under his control to bear in mind the good points of other services and to remember the fact that the success of this work would be directly affected by their relations with their comrades of the great cause and this extraordinary consolidation of force and spirit is precisely the thing which more than anything else takes the attention of the visiting correspondent consolidation not cooperation 
it is a phrase that well might have been our allied motto from the first while in london i had several talks with admiral sims in his office in grosvenor gardens of the many distinguished men it has been my lot to interview admiral sims stands first for the ability to put a guest at ease tall spare erect and walking with a fine carriage our admiral is a personality whom the interviewer can never forget one has but to talk with him a few minutes to realize the secret of the extraordinary personal loyalty he inspires and he is as popular in france as he is in england speaking french fluently he is able to carry on discussion with the french members of the naval council in their own language consolidation not cooperation there's a real phrase and thanks to the great man who said it and insisted upon it we defeated the common enemy eighteen machine against machine the year stood at the threshold of the spring a promise of warmth lay in the climbing sun on land one might have heard the first songs of the birds at sea the mists of winter were lifting from the waters and the sun for many months shrunk and silver pale shone hard and golden bright a fresh clear wind was blowing from the west driving ahead of it a multitude of low foam-streaked waves there was not a sign of life to be seen anywhere on the vast disk of the sea not a trail not a smudge of smoke on the horizon circle not even a solitary gull or diver the destroyer dwarfed by her world ran up and down the square she had been chosen to guard she had the air of performing a casual evolution there was never anything to be found in this particular square it lay beyond the great highways even the sight of a coaster was there something of a rarity periscopes were never reported from that area never had been reported and probably never would be caressed by the sun enveloped in the serenity of the day as in a mantle the destroyer went back and forth on her patrol the emergence of the periscope a quarter of a mile ahead off the starboard bow had in it something so unattended that the incident had a character of abnormality much as if a familiar hill should suddenly turn into a volcano it is greatly to the honor of the ship's discipline that those aboard were not staled by months of unfruitful vigil and acted as swiftly as if the destruction of a submarine were matter of daily practice there it lay going steadily along about two hundred yards away a simple most unromantic black rod rising two feet or so above the waves a white furrow like a kind of comet's tail streamed behind it forever widening at the end later on they asked themselves what the submarine could possibly have been doing seeking a quiet place to come up to breathe to effect repairs to send out a hurried wireless message it might have been a rendezvous between the two vessels one felt that the gods had brought to pass there no careless drama but a tragedy long meditated and skilfully prepared the morning sun watched a casual spectator the duel between the two engines of violence there had been a command a call of the summoning bell a release of power carefully stored for just such an event and the destroyer leaped ahead like a runner from the starting line the periscope meanwhile continued to plough its way straight ahead 
almost into the teeth of the wind and the flattened marbly waves presently either because the destroyer had been seen or heard on the submarine telephone the submarine began to submerge sucking in a kind of a foaming hollow as she sank aboard the destroyer they wondered if the keel would clear her and waited for the shock the rasping grind but nothing happened the first depth bomb fell into the heart of the submariner's swirl even as a well-placed stone falls in the heart of a pond trembling to the roar of her fans the destroyer fled across the spot and turned the wake of her passing had almost obliterated the platter-shaped swirl the submarine had left behind one had a vision of the great steel cylinder tumbling bubbling down through green water to dark harmless as a spool of thread on the surface but presently to be changed by the wisdom and cunning of men into monstrous and chaotic strength one two three four five a thundering pound the submarine rose behind them her bow on the crest of the geyser an immense tapering rusty mass wet and shining in the placid glance of the day from a kind of hole some distance up the side a stream of oil ran much like blood from a small deep wound a gun spoke and spoke again a careening whiz ugly hollow crashes of tearing steel the sub heeled far over on her starboard side those nearest heard or thought they heard screaming the bow sank tilting up the great planes and propellers a monstrous bubble or two broke on the tormented surface just before she disappeared and with her going the calm of the spring morning which had been frightened away like a singing bird returned once more to the tragic and mysterious sea nineteen the legend of kelly kelly not von bieberstein or hans bratwurst is his name kelly spelled with an e the first destroyer officer whom you question will very possibly have never heard of him the second will have heard the legend the third will tell you of a radio officer a friend of his who received one of kelly's messages so day by day the legend grows apace kelly is the captain of a german submarine the first time that i heard about him he figured as a young irishman of good family who had attached himself to the german cause in order to settle old scores lots of people know him in the west of ireland he goes ashore there any time he cares to another version perhaps the true one if there be any truth at all in this fantastic business is that kelly is no irishman but a cosmopolitan jesting german with a celtic camouflage no less a person than captain james norman hall testifies that the germans in the trenches often tried to anger the british troops by pretending they were disloyal irish so perhaps kelly is a von bieberstein after all a third version has it that kelly is a californian of irish origin those who hold to this last view have it that kelly spares all american ships but sends the union jack to the bottom without mercy many and varied are kelly's activities he has a penchant for sending messages i am in latitude x and longitude y come and get me kelly 
has come at the dead of night into the ears of many an astounded radio operator others declare that these messages were sent by hans rose the skipper of the submarine which attacked the shipping off nantucket in 1916 all agree that kelly was the beau ideal of pirates he sinks a ship and apologizes for his action he sees the women passengers into the boat with the grace and urbanity of a chesterfield he comes alongside a wretched huddle of survivors supplies them with food and sends out notice of their position when they ask his name he replies captain kelly and disappears from view beneath the sea he goes ashore and proves his visit with theatre tickets and hotel bills london hotel bills made out to kelly esquire he requests the survivors as a slight favor to tell captain nameless of the destroyer x y z that his propeller shaft needs repairing that he kelly has been seriously annoyed by having to listen to the imperfect beat via the submarine telephone there is certainly a flavor of celt in this chivalry tinged with mockery i could never find anybody who had actually seen him much to my regret for i should have been glad to describe so famous a person months have passed since last i heard of him perhaps he is still in the irish sea perhaps he is now at Arich, perhaps he has gone aloft to join his kinsman the flying dutchman if so let us keep his memory green for he was a pirate sans preux et sans reproche twenty sons of the trident any essay on the british sailor must rise from a foundation of wholesome respect one cannot look at the master of the world without philosophy and british jack is the world's master for he holds in his hands that mastery of the seas which is the mastery of the land he is a sailor of the mightiest of all navies an inheritor of the world's most remarkable naval tradition a true son of britannia's ancient trident what is he like british jack how does he impress those companions who share the vigil of the seas to begin with the briton is on the average an older man than our blue jacket british jack has not gone into the royal navy for the fun of it or to see the world as our posters say but as the serious business of his life his enlistment is an eight-year affair and by the time that he has completed it he rarely thinks of returning to a prosaic life ashore thus it comes about that whilst our american sailors are usually somewhere in the eager irresponsible twenties british tars are often men of sober middle age one is sure to see in any of the home ports the fleet's married men out walking on sunday with their wives and children forming together a number of honest steady little groups whose hold on the durable satisfactions of life it is a pleasure to see the home ports idea has well proved its value it is simple enough in operation each ship according to the plan bases on some definite port thus permitting poor jack who has enough of roaming at sea to have a steady home on land in all the great british bases therefore you will find these sailor colonies i was well acquainted with a retired navy chaplain who ministered to such a group these families form a distinct group dependent on the navy 
marriages are performed by the naval chaplain the ills of the flesh are looked after by the fleet surgeons and the rare troubles are brought to the judgment of jack's favorite officers our american crews are gathered together from all over the vast continent british crews are often recruited from one section of the country for instance a ship manned by a crew from out of devon is known as a west country ship and its sailors as westos a real royal navy man knows in an instant the character of any ship which he happens to visit the drawled oas and oes of the west tell the story i once heard a westo refer to an officious wharf tender as a bloody toad a phrase that certainly has character then there be ships based on irish ports indeed there are sure to be irish sailors on every ship irresponsible keen-witted celts to whom all devilment is entrusted the war has not been without influence on the naval personnel british jack had in his own social system a place of his own he is not looked down upon for the british blue jacket has been is and forever ought to be the best loved of national figures sons of gentlemen however i use the term here in its british sense did not join the royal navy as enlisted men such a thing would have been regarded as a queer no mild word in britain and the crew certainly would have looked upon any such arrival as an intruder but just as the war has placed university men side by side in the ranks with troopers like kipling's or theris so has it placed among the enlisted personnel of the royal navy a large number of men from the educated and wealthier class there hung in the royal academy this spring a portrait of a british blue jacket a pleasant-looking lad some nineteen or twenty years of age with blond hair a long face and honest eyes of english grey it was entitled my son almost invariably the older visitors to the exhibition when looking at this picture would fall to talking of the change in the social system which the portrait symbolized there are always a number of boys on british ships for the british hold that to be a good sailor one should early become familiar with the sea the status of boy is a kind of distinct rating, and these youngsters are addressed by their last names, viz. Boy Bumbleshook or Boy Stiggins. They have shown up wonderfully well. One has but to recall little Cornell of Jutland to see of what stuff these lads are made. The British sailor's uniform is picturesque and characteristic, but certainly less attractive than ours. It is cut not of broadcloth or of serge, but of heavy blue worsted, and a detachable collar of blue linen falls back upon the blouse. Our sailors are forever washing the blouses to keep the white stripes of the collar clean. The Briton has only his collar to care for. And there is a difference between the national bills as marked as the difference twixt the uniforms. Our jack is rangy, lean, and quick-moving the briton heavier shorter and more deliberate in hours of leisure the briton busies himself with knitting wood carving or weaving rag rugs the american driven by the mechanical genius of the nation hurries to the ship's machine shop to pound a half crown into a ring the sons of columbia and the sons of britannia get on very well together 
at the big clubhouse at the irish base there are always little groups of british sailors to be seen quiet well-behaved fellows who watch everything with british dignity our blue jackets however are far more chummy with british soldiers than with britons of their own calling navy blue and khaki are forever going down the street arm in arm the tar is always keen to hear of the front tommy does the talking after all there is a difference in the vernacular witness this poem which i reprint from the august number of our navy it is by a navy man mr r p Malsley. the word limey here shortened to lima means used as a noun a british sailor man used as an adjective british the term had its origin in the ancient british custom of giving lime juice to ward off scurvy the lima and the yanks by r p mousley it was nice and cosy in the pub and blowing cold outside by the fireplace sat two gobbies america's joy and pride when a lima from a cruiser thought their talk he'd like to hear and sat down just behind them with half a pint of beer and o'er a flowing mug of ale that held about a quart he heard them swapping stories about their stay in port say this is sure some burg though it ain't the u s a but did you pipe the classy jane that passed us on the quay she gave me some sweet smile beau and winked her pretty eye get out you big haymaker it was for me she meant to sigh go on you homey piece of cheese you're talkin through your hat i'll bet you just ten plasters it was me she was smilin at i'll take that up old-timer why that's some easy dough we'll have another round and then we'll have to blow and if i lamp that broad kid and she cottons to me quick i'll buy her everything in town and make that tin look sick they arose and left the lima a-gasping in some chairs and as they left the room he heard them on the stairs like candy from a baby i'll take your coin this day and have a high old time and say how did you get that way the lima emptied his tanker and caught the barmaid's eye i heard them yanks a tarkin but what the bloomin hell they sigh twenty one the fleet the fleet lay in the firth of fourth it was one o'clock in the afternoon and the little suburban train which leaves and pauses at the edinburgh grand fleet pier had not yet been brought to its platform the cold sunlight of a northern spring fell upon the vast empty station and burnished the lines of rail beyond the entrance arch two porters from the adjoining hotel wearing coats of orange-red with dull brass buttons stood lackadaisically by a booking-office closed for the dinner-hour presently after a piercing shriek intensified by the surrounding quiet the suburban train backed in with a smooth crawling noise various folk began to appear on the platform a group of young british naval officers a handful of older sailors a captain carrying a small leather affair much like a miniature suitcase a number of civilians two jacks evidently on furlough and a young sailor lad with a fine bull terrier bitch on a leash no one entered to share my compartment the train left behind the clean grim town rolled on through suburbs and through fields barely awake to the spring paused here and there at tidy little stations reached the station above the pier 
somewhat uncertain of my path to the landing i followed a group of officers a middle-aged soldier sentry with gray hair and ruddy cheeks held me up for my pass unfolded and folded it again with extraordinary deliberation and courteously set me on my way as yet there was no sign of the sea nor had it once been visible during the journey one might have been on the way to play golf at an inland field the path to the pier descended a great flight of steps and passed a space in which men were playing football a turn down a bit of road and i was looking at the fleet it lay in the great firth in a monstrous estuary enclosed between barren banks rising to no great height bare scattered woodlands were to be seen a clump of cottages a castellated house in a solitary spot a great wharf with a trumpery traveller's bookstall in a wooden shed at its entrance a huddle of grey roofs at the water's edge on the distant side over a spur of land the smoke of a giant dockyard rose in a hazy reek to the obscured and silvery sun the water in which the squadrons lay was for the moment as calm as a woodland pool in colour green-grey an incredible number of ships of war lying lengthwise in orderly lines bows turned to the unseen river of the rising tide row after row squadron after squadron fleet after fleet ships of war dark terrible and huge no more to be counted than the leaves of trees as far as the eye could reach up and down the firth ships one beheld there the mastery of the sea made visible the mastery of all the highways and the secret paths of the waters of earth because of this fleet ships were able to bring grain from distant fields great hopes were kept aflame and the life-blood of evil ambitions poured upon the ground a grey haze lay at the mouth of the roads and somewhere in the heart of it was target practice being held for violent blots of light again and again burst upon the dim and veiling fog small gulls passed on motionless wings whistling now and then a vessel would run up a tangle of flags the signal light of a flagship suddenly uttered a message with intermittent flashes of an unnatural violet-white glare over earth and sea brooded the peace of empire twenty two the american squadron the morning found me a guest aboard the flagship of the american battleship squadron attached to the grand fleet going on deck i found the sun struggling through thin motionless mists a layer of webby drops lay on wall and rail on turret and gun Presently a little cool wind, blowing from the land, fled over the calm water in mottled scaly spots, bringing with it a piping beat of rhythmic music. Half a mile beyond the flagship, the crew of a British warship were running in a column round and round her decks to the music of the ship's band. An endless file of white-clad figures bent forward, a faint regular tattoo of running feet round and about several of the giants were signalling in blinker beyond us stood a titanic bridge whose network was here and there smooched with clinging vapour and beneath this giant a tanker laden with oil for the fleet passed solemnly followed by wheeling gulls presently two american sailors lads of that alert eager type that is so intensely and honestly american 
popped out of a doorway and began to polish bright work america was here surely it was one of the finest thoughts of the war to send this squadron of ours putting aside for the instant any thought of the squadron as a unit of naval strength americans and britons will do well to consider it rather as a splendid symbol of a union dedicated to the most honourable of purposes to the defence of that ideal of fraternity and international good faith now menaced they say that when the american squadron came steaming into the fleet's more northern base one bitter winter day cheer after cheer broke from the british vessels as they passed till even the forlorn snow-covered land rang with the shouting it has recently been announced that our battleship squadron is under the command of admiral hugh rodman which announcement the germans must have taken to heart for admiral rodman is a man of action if ever one there is tall strongly built vigorous and alert he dominates whatever group he happens to find himself in by sheer force of personality it would fare ill with a german who brought his fleet under the sweep of those keen eyes admiral rodman is a kentuckian and a union of bluegrass and blue sea is pretty hard to beat especially when accompanied by a shrewd sense of humour i talked with admiral rodman about the squadron and its work always remember said he that this squadron is not over here as somebody put it helping the british nor are we cooperating with the british fleet such ideas are erroneous and would mislead your readers think of this great fleet which you see here as a unit of force controlled by one ideal one spirit and one mind and of the american squadron as an integral part of that fleet take as an instance of what i mean the change in our signalling system we came over here using the american system of signals well we could not have two sets of signals going so in order to get right into things we learned the british signals and it's the british system we are using today there are american ships here and british ships but only one fleet everywhere i went i found both british and american officers keen to emphasize this unity said a briton why we no longer think of the americans of the americans we think of squadron x of the fleet it's just wonderful the way your chaps have got down to business and fallen in with the technique and the traditions we expected to see you spend some time getting into the life of the fleet and all that you know the sort of thing that a boy in a public school goes through before he gets the spirit and the ways of the place but your people came along in the morning and had picked up everything by the afternoon and i found the americans proud of the fleet's essential oneness proud to share in its great tradition and to be a part of its history america is taking no obscure place her hosts have given her the place of honour in the battle-line battle that was the thought of everybody aboard the fleet if only the german high canal fleet would really come out and fight it to a finish or as an american lieutenant put it start something the germans however knew only too well that the famous betoasted der tag would turn swiftly into dies irae and preferred to surrender 
so for lack of an antagonist the fleet had to be content to keep steam up all the time and to know that everything was prepared for a day of battle but the fleet did far more than wait no statement of the germans was more empty of truth than the silly cry that the british fleet lies skulking in harbour for fear of submarines the fleet was busy all the time again and again a visible defiance it swept by the mine-sealed mouths of the german bases for five years now the fleet has been on a war footing prepared for instant action a tremendous task this if they only had come out the buggers a day with the fleet in port passed casually and calmly enough there was none of that melodrama which invests the war of the destroyer and the submarine and human problems seemed to lack importance for in the fleet man is somewhat shadowed by the immense forces he has created on board there were various drills perhaps a general quarters practice drill that sends everybody scurrying to his station hour after hour the visitor sees the continuous and multitudinous activity needed to keep a dreadnought in shape as a fortress an engine and a ship then when the evening has come such officers as are off duty may sit down to a game of bridge or go to their rooms to read or study quietly there are great days when kings and queens come aboard and are royally entertained twice a week the entertainment committee of the fleet sent around a steel box full of movies however everybody enjoys them and laughs but it is good to escape on deck again and see the squadron and the fleet beneath the haloed moon the shores about are quite in darkness though now and then a glow appears over the hidden dockyard as if someone there had opened a furnace door a little breeze is blowing a thin flat sheet of cloud across the moon one can hear water slapping against the sides the sailors on watch walk up and down the decks shouldering their guns in the light one might believe the basketry of the woven mass to be spun of delicate silver bars behind us ride the other vessels of the squadron a row of dark triangular shapes the great columnar guns sealed with a brazen plug seem mute and dead the curtain of a hatchway parts and a little group of officers come on deck to watch a squadron go to sea one by one the vessels battleships and attendant destroyers glide past us into the dark and so swift and silent their motion is that they seem to be less self-propelled than drawn forward by some mysterious force dwelling far beyond in the moonlit sea a slight hiss of cleaving water the length of a hurrying grey fortress beneath the moon and the last of the squadron vanishes down the roads for a little time one may see the diminishing glares of blinker lights squadrons of various kinds are forever leaving a fleet base to go on mysterious errands squadrons are ever returning home from the mystery and silence of the sea a friend comes to tell me that we have been put on short notice and may leave at any instant End of part five.